Go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. And we are talking about flesh, the flesh of Christ. John chapter 1. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And then we'll flip to Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2 as well. John chapter 1, verse 14. These are the words of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with a with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and triune God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Since Advent season is now underway, I thought we would take the next three weeks to look at the remarkable and complex doctrine of the Incarnation. Uh, Adventus, which is the Latin form of Advent, uh, simply means coming or arrival. And Advent is a season of waiting, it's a season of patience and anticipation, and the pinnacle of all of it is obviously Christmas Day when we celebrate Christ. So we wait with expectation now during this season, and we wait with expectation for the birth of the King. The Christian liturgical calendar begins with the first Sunday of Advent, which was last week, and each year we take time to consider what Herman Bovink calls the highest, richest, and most perfect act of self-revelation. God became man. It is the highest, richest, and most perfect act of self-revelation. In the Incarnation, Jesus, the Son of God, who is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, He took on and assumed human flesh. The Eternal Son became a man revealed to us as Jesus of Nazareth. Each person of the Trinity freely and consciously decided in what theologians call the, the pact of redemption. They decided before all of eternity in this pact of redemption, this covenant of redemption, to carry out the recreation of the world, at the center of which is the reclamation of sinners, by sending the Son to become a man and die for the sins of the world. So we needed a second Adam. Now, Jesus did not have a phantom body or a ghost-like body like the heretic Martian believed. Uh, he didn't appear to be human and was a fluid spiritual being as 
Valentinus and the Gnostics believed. Um, Apelles, he was a disciple of Martian, he surmised that Jesus abandoned his human body after ascending to the Father, while the heretic Serinthus, uh, he was an enemy of the disciple of John, he thought that the Messiah came upon Jesus at his baptism, but then left him uh, at his suffering. So lots and lots of heretical teachers attempted to assault the purity of the incarnation of the Son of God, and frankly, the church valiantly fought back against these atrocious errors. Uh, two church councils are particularly noteworthy. Uh, first was the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325 AD, so quite a while ago. And the Council of Nicaea made sure to hammer out a robust doctrine of the Trinity. And what they emphasized was that Jesus is absolutely God in the flesh. We don't have to diminish that fact. He is God in the flesh. He is co-equal and consubstantial with the Father and the Spirit. He is equally God, just like the Father and the Spirit. Um, the, during this time, it was a very heated time. Uh, the Arian controversy, which was named after the heretic Arius, he had to be dealt with at Nicaea because Arius had taught that Jesus was not divine, but instead Jesus was a created being. And so that teaching was pretty popular and it was growing and it needed to be corrected. And so that's partly why the Council of Nicaea was called for. And just remember, three, think of the dates here. In 325 was the Council of Nicaea, but back up to 313 AD, you have the Edict of Milan, which Constantine essentially Christianized the Roman Empire. So right after that, we see, okay, now we have some theology to, to sort out. So that was the Council of Nicaea. The second one, the Council of Chalcedon, which we'll talk about more later, that happened about a century later in 451 AD. And the council came along and settled the issue of Jesus' two natures, and again, we're going to come back to that. So both councils were and are important in seeing to it that we have a proper and biblical Christology. Who is this Christ? Who is this Jesus? Now, thinking locally here for a second about us, we affirm at Crossing Crown both the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon. Um, to teach anything contrary to these things is to essentially destroy the Incarnation. And once you've done that, you've destroyed the Christian faith. So when a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness walks up to you and says, Hi, I'm a Christian, the first thing out of your mouth is, No, you are not. You can say it somewhat nicer if you want. I just tend to go right to the point. <clears throat> now, per our Constitution here as a church, our Constitution, we do ask new members to affirm the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, and the Athanasian Creed. Um, elders at the elder level here in our church subscribe to the Westminster Standards, but we do not require that for membership. So you could, you know, potentially prefer the Belgic Confession of Faith or something like that, and that's okay. Um, but that, we just want it to be clear kind of where we're at as a session and then where we're at with membership. At any rate, our main text for the next three weeks is John 1, verse 14. And we're going to focus today on the Word who became flesh. So let's look at John again. And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John has already told us, if you go up at the very beginning there of the book, John has already told us that in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Logos there in verse 1, the Word, or sometimes Calvin uses it, 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 it can be word or speech, that's the idea. This Logos has an eternal identity with God as God. So this Jesus is the Word from all of eternity. Proverbs 8 kind of gets into that. that he's, he, Jesus is wisdom. Wisdom spoke all things. Jesus is identified as wisdom. But he is the Logos. He, he was with God forever as God forever. This speech word was present with the divine Godhead in the beginning. That is at creation. Verse 2. And everything that came into being, in other words, everything that contingently exists, okay, that which is assuredly not God, everything came into being, did so because this word did the talking. Jesus is life and light, we find here. That's an echo of the creation story. Uh, at creation in Genesis 1 and 2, the life and light of the Logos is echoed in the creation of life, uh, light and life in space and time. So the first command of God is what? Let there be light. So immediately you have light and life coming together as at creation. And so this is an echo of uh, John's writing this and he's immediately thinking creation story. That's why it says in the beginning. And where else do we see in the beginning? <laughs> Genesis 1.1. <clears throat> now, John the Baptist is mentioned here and he's mentioned early on as a witness who was sent from God, and he bore witness to this light. So he's a testimony has been brought forward. This is John the Baptist. He's, he's a witness. And some, we know, received the light. Others rejected him in their sinful obstinance. Uh, those who embraced the light, look at verse 12, they became what? Children of God. When you embrace the light, you become children of God. And these children become children by Holy Spirit-empowered means. What we call the regeneration of new birth. They weren't born, verse 13, by flesh and blood, which is how normal humans are born in that capacity. They weren't born of the will of men either. I mean, none of you decided to come into this world, right? <laughs> So you, this sort of bornness, uh, born againness, is is like the birth that we all know and experience and understand, but it's different as well. Part of the writer's point here, John's point, is the flesh of man cannot be made spiritually alive by man's own volition. So dead men do not wake themselves up, right? Lazarus did not wake himself up. Jesus woke him up with the same power the life-giving power of creation. Amen. So, dead men don't wake themselves up. Darkness is incapable of turning on the light. So what must happen? God must act. God must act. Which brings us to verse 14. In order for men to be saved from their pitiable condition, God must send this light into the world and change the hearts of men. That's the only way it gets done. 
this word light became flesh. Now, Lord willing, uh, we'll, look, we'll consider the phrase dwelt among us next week. And on Christmas Eve, can you believe it? It's coming so soon. On Christmas Eve, we'll look at what it means to behold His glory. Now, this word became, became flesh. That word became indicates something or someone coming into existence in a certain fashion. This word light at creation has now entered into human history, space and time, and became flesh. That word flesh, uh, pretty normal word in Greek language, sarx, S-A-R-X, is how we would put it in English. Sometimes it is a metaphor for sinful, the sinful human condition. So when we think of Paul talking about this, this fleshly desire, sometimes it's uh, the, the condition of sin that we've fallen into. Other times it's simply used to describe the physicality of being a human being. So we think flesh, what do we say? Flesh and blood, right? There's, there's bones, there's blood, there's material objects that you can touch. You know, that's what the word means. And I, I see here that we have a reference to both in some sense. The distance, we all know, the distance between the divine logos and the filth of sinful flesh is eternal. That distance is eternal. And yet the Son of God stooped very low to save us all. Now, to be clear, Jesus didn't take on a sinful flesh. Um, his Father is the Heavenly Father. Mary was a virgin. She did not know a man. And she uh, had a child in the womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus didn't take on sinful flesh. And that's because man was originally created good. If we remember Adam, he was made very good. So Jesus didn't take on the sinful flesh post-Adam. Jesus, Jesus is the biological man who remained totally unstained by sin. Now, we don't want to be Neoplatonists who believe that uh, the spirit is good, but the flesh is inherently evil. The Son of God, a spirit with the triune God, because God is spirit, he became mortal man. That is, he took on a frail, perishing human nature. And keep in mind that Christ was born after Adam had sinned, and yet he, unlike Adam, was sinless. Now, if you think about it, this may be particularly of interest for children who like to speculate. I mean, we all like to speculate to some degree, but you think about Jesus. What happened if he never died on the cross? Now, that gets into theological problems because bloodshed is how forgiveness is granted. But think about, I want you to just think about his humanity. When he became a man, eventually he would have grown old and died. Now, that's... Jesus, the sinless man, a biological man, who was himself completely unstained and untainted by sin, living in a world broken by sin, where death is a reality. So I, I just want you to think about the humanity of, of Jesus. And when he came, that's the condition of man, fallen in Adam, in need of grace. And this is really important because we do not want to make a theological mistake here. Uh, I'll give you <clears throat> one, one man, um, Apollinarius. He, he was a man who rightfully stood against Arianism. So go back to the fourth century. He, 
He stood against Arianism, but he mistakenly believed that the Messiah was clothed, simply clothed in humanity, but didn't have a soul. And so this idea that Jesus wasn't merely, we need to know that Jesus wasn't merely human on the outside and then deity on the inside. Um, Almost like you put like a huge jacket on. Uh, Jesus as deity sort of put on human, and so the inside was God, the outside was human. That's wrong. Um, Jesus as a human had all of humanity. He had a soul, so Apollinarius was, was wrong. Um, he was in his full deity and full humanity, and in every definitional sense. Uh, I love what Augustine said. He came later after the Council of Nicaea, and he says it well. God became human so that humans could become, again, in reality, human. John of Damascus summarized it this way, For the whole Christ assumed the whole me, that he might grant salvation to the whole me. For what is, this is a famously quoted line, For what is unassumable is incurable. What is unassumable is incurable, that is, If Christ didn't assume or take on human flesh, he thus cannot cure man's condition. So we need an atonement. We need forgiveness. And if we mess around with the doctrine of the incarnation, which has happened repeatedly and happens today in the various uh, Christian cults, right? When we mess with that, we mess with salvation. He had to be fully man to bring the blessing far as the curse is found. The biblical confession is, as one writer puts it, this pre-existent, divine, all-creating, usually rejected, gracious Lord of the cosmos and of history became, in the very center of history, again, down and dirty, flesh. Not just spirit, or even person, but a completely physical, real, fleshly human being, end quote. The eternal word who made everything entered space as a perishable man. And he entered time as a man with limitations. So that's God made flesh. Flip to Philippians. Philippians 2, here Paul argues that churches are supposed to be a place where humility is on full display. Uh, That's his main point here in chapter 2. Churches are supposed to be places where humility is the norm. Paul uh, wants his joy to be in them, and he wants that to be fulfilled, and that looks like the encouragement in Christ. It looks like consolation of love. This is verses 1 and 2. It looks like fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And it also looks like affection and compassion towards one another. So he's urging the church in Philippi, and he's urging us today, to have a certain characteristic about us. Christians in church communities are supposed to have a certain like-mindedness, and it looks like self-giving love, unity in the Spirit, and common purpose. Absolutely nothing, he says, is to be done with selfish ambition or vainglory, Uh, To the contrary, and this is the kicker in verse 3, we are with humility of mind to regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
We are not supposed to look out for our own interests only, verse 4. We're supposed to look out for the interests of others as well. And here, Paul quotes an early Christian hymn to illustrate what humility looks like. What it looks like to look out for the interests of others. What did Jesus do? He tells us he existed in the form, morphe in Greek. You think of morphing, changing. He existed in the form of God. That is, his essential being and his and essence is eternal deity. Uh, the early Christians understood that Jesus is God. He's fully and eternally and entirely God. He is one of the three persons, the equally subsisting persons of the triune Godhead. And yet, verse 6, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, Jesus didn't believe he had to hold on to his equal status with God no matter the situation. His self-giving abasement was something he volunteered for. It wasn't required. No one forces God's hand. No one. So the early hymn teaches us that Jesus didn't prize his divine status so much so that he selfishly hoarded it to himself. That's what Paul's getting at. Instead, says verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. He was found in appearance as a man and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, verse 8. So because of his self-giving condescension and his faithful work, God exalted him, crowning him with the name which is above every name, verse 9. Additionally, every knee will bow. As a result of all of this work, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The last shall be first. The lowest shall be highest. Jesus is our example. You want to be strong? You must admit your weakness. Now, one thing I need to make sure we understand is this phrase, emptied himself. The word emptied doesn't mean that Jesus, in taking on a fully human nature, ceased to be God in a metaphysical sense. Some people have this misunderstanding. Oh, he emptied himself. He stopped being divinity and God and then became human. Not what it, not what it means. It's not what it means at all. God's self-existence is interminable. The, the Son of God could never stop being the Son of God. All of creation is contingent and dependent upon God, who is pure being in the sense that God is one in three. He's always existed, will always exist. No one puts his existence into motion. God simply is. So Jesus never stopped being the second person of the Trinity. In order to achieve what needed to be achieved, Jesus concealed his glory in the view of men under the weakness of flesh, as Calvin puts it. So he became a slave of all so that he might win his people, completely self-abased and yet perfectly God and man at the same time. During his ministry, his deity, which you may recall, was gloriously shown at the Transfiguration. That was kept hidden. That was kept hidden so that the fullest expression of his human nature could be visible for all. And that's what we see here in Philippians 2. To save men, Jesus must become a man. And I love how Paul says, 
this attitude should be in the church, that none of us value ourselves so much that we will not give ourselves to others. That's the paradigm. So how shall we then live? What we're speaking about is the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The Greek word hypostasis means person. So when we speak of the hypostatic union, we're talking about the unity of the person of Christ. Two distinct and complete natures, fully and truly God, fully and truly man, who are integrated, those natures are integrated in one essential person, God the Son incarnate. I mentioned earlier the Council of Chalcedon, and on October 22nd, 451, they issued this definition. It's longer than this. I mean, it's not a long statement, but I'm, I shortened it to make my point. Quoting in part, Our Lord Jesus Christ is perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. That phrase comes from this, by the way, from 451. Truly or really or verily God, verily man. Of a reasonable soul and body, in all things like unto us, without sin, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, inseparably. The distinction of natures being no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. Now, a couple of things to note, because that can be daunting to just hear without being able to see some of those things. First, Jesus has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. Regarding the divine nature, the Son of God has always been and will always be in the fullest actuality, God. He will always be God. Every attribute of God, when you think of infinitude, eternality, unchangeableness, all these attributes that are God's and God's alone, all of it belongs to the Son as well. What can be said of God can be said of Jesus. And obviously we make a distinction because the Father didn't die on the cross, right? It wasn't Jesus who was sent to us after the death and resurrection of the Father. It was the Spirit. So we, we make a distinction in the Godhead between the three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But when we think of the unity that is the Trinity, the triunity of God, when we speak of Jesus being eternal, or God being eternal, we can speak of Jesus being eternal in those types of things. So that's the divine nature. But Jesus has a human nature as well. And regarding that, Jesus, the Logos, made flesh. He possesses every attribute essential to humanity, meaning body and soul. He was really a man. Hebrews 2 says it this, this way, and it's pretty clear. Hebrews 2, you might read it later, 14 through 17. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through the death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He was truly man. God, man. Two natures, one person. Second, <clears throat> there are distinctions, distinctions between the two natures. So it's not enough to just say, well, Jesus has two natures. Well, then that begs a question, well, how do those natures interact? Jesus doesn't have a combined or hybrid nature where the divine and human are sort of entangled and enmeshed together. Like they sort of almost bleed, bleed into each other. Nor do those attributes interfere with the other attributes. So each nature is unchanged. They are not confused. By the way, when I say that, <clears throat> I'm speaking of Jesus today. He is in heaven, sitting at the right hand, fully God, fully human. But his human nature did change in the sense that he was resurrected. We are not yet resurrected. So a caveat there. So these natures are, are not confused. They do not blend and cross over into each other. They cannot be separated in one person either. Uh, Gregory, a famous church father, wrote in the 4th century, For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. He's quoting John of Damascus, who came before him. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of Adam fell, he must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation, or clothe the Savior only with bones and nerves and the portraiture of man. In other words, what he's saying from the 4th century is that the Son of God assumed, he took on flesh, he retained that deity, only adding to his essential divine nature and an essential human nature. And he did it in order to save. If, if, if Adam, because this is Thomas Aquinas, Roman Catholic doctrine, gets into, well, did Adam, when he sinned, was his reason and his ability to do logic, did that fall into sin as well? And a lot of people will say no. But the Reformers in the Reformed tradition, we espouse such things, believe that the Bible is very clear that even the mind of man is debased. So Jesus had to come as flesh and have a human thinking brain in the fullest sense where neurons are firing, where blood was pumping through his veins, where Jesus, I don't know, did he fall down and get a cut? Uh, probably, you know, I mean, the sandals weren't fitting right that day or something. And he tripped. A lot of Gnostic uh, heretical doctrines are out there teaching about how Jesus did things like turned this clay dove into a real dove. And there's just all these, you know, people try to fill in the gaps. We're not supposed to know. If we were supposed to know, we would be told. But Jesus was fully, fully human. And he only added those things to his divinity. Um, a savior without flesh and bones cannot save a sinner made of flesh and bones. That's Gregory's point. Third, we have two natures. Those natures can be distinguished. Third, though, there's only one person, not two. This is so pivotal to the Christian faith. We're talking about the identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus has two natures in one person. He doesn't have two separate minds. 
You think of Jesus ministering to the disciples. He never had to come to a point where he was thinking, all right, well, my divine mind thinks this, but my human mind thinks this. That He does not have two minds. He has one mind. He is one uh, person. The so-called human Jesus didn't have within him this divine person who filled his spirit. That's what Apollinarius was teaching. Jesus is and always has been the second person of the Trinitarian Godhead. He simply added to that divine nature a human nature. So there is only one I or ego, an I, a self. There's only I. And were Jesus to be speaking right now, he would refer to himself as me or I. Not the human I or maybe the divine I. No, this is who I am. One person. So why did this miracle happen? Well, the mystery of how it happened, we're going to explore more next week when we talk about dwelt, what that means. But for now, we want to know why it happened. Why did Jesus become flesh? Simply put, the Son of God took on human flesh in order to save us. Simple statement, core to Christianity. Why did Jesus take on a human nature to save us? The dilemma of Eden was resolved with a birth in Bethlehem. There was a a dilemma in Eden that needed to be resolved centuries later with a birth in Bethlehem. When Adam sinned in the garden, we know the world was plunged into darkness. Thus, we know the wages of sin is death. So right away, we have a problem. The creature has severed the covenantal relationship. Man now owes God an infinite debt. Can man, the finite one, pay that debt? No way. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus had to be flesh and bone because man found himself in an incurable predicament. Jesus had to be fully God because only God can provide a suitable atonement. God could do the work. Man owed the debt. God comes in the flesh to become man to pay the debt. It really is that simple. God desires to display his glory in man, his image bearer. Man rejected that glory in order to go about his own way. We needed a flesh and bone sacrifice because the blood of animals doesn't atone for man. Man's blood must be shed for man is the one who has sinned. But we needed a perfect, suitable sacrifice, one without blemish. And no man is able to provide such a thing. No one, no Jew brought to the temple a lamb with a broken leg. It was not a suitable sacrifice. And in that moment, we should be thinking, the animal isn't even a suitable sacrifice. Then that animal is supposed to represent me. And I know I'm not a suitable sacrifice either because I'm the one who sinned. Here is Jesus, the Lamb of God. If we will not accept the fact that God became man, we will soon find that men will desire to become a God. Imbrication, or this overlap, will always happen if the two natures of Christ are confused. Uh, Rushduni says this brilliantly. He says, if the two natures of Christ were confused, it meant that the door was open to the divinizing, divinizing of human nature. Man and the state were then potentially divine. If the human nature of Christ were reduced or denied, 
His role as man's incarnate Savior was reduced or denied. Man's Savior, again, became the state. Rush Juni says, if we do not have this doctrine in place where God became man, if that's not there, men will always want to be God. Now, why does all of this matter? Because the incarnation deals with the facts of life. We are image bearers in God's good created order who have sadly sinned against this God. Our entire existence became fragmented in that moment in Eden. Our relationship with God, ourselves, each other, and the world was tainted by the encroachment of sin. So what did God do? He sent his son. In Christ, our image bearing is restored, though we await final glorification. In Christ, our sins are paid for fully and finally. In Christ, we are brought back to God our Father. We, in Christ, are children of God. In Christ Jesus, one person, two natures, we now have the ability to experience relationships with each other in a manner consistent with the holiness of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, in that God who has made flesh, and this God-man dying and rising and ascending is what brings us all back to God. And it does not make us deity like God, but it makes us like God nonetheless. God with us is a great mystery. Think about it. The invisible was made visible. The spiritual was made flesh. Immortality took on mortality. The self-contained, boundlessly free omnipresent God became a man who was located in one place at one time in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Beyond the glories of the sky is the heavenly of all heavenlies, the throne room of God, where the triune God sits enthroned, filling the world with His glory and His presence. This one true God is full of power, he is entirely self-sufficient, and he needs nothing. He needs nothing. And then we look at the ground beneath our feet, and we see that this Son of God took on the frailty of dust, flesh and blood, bumps and bruises, temptations and trials. Jesus went through it all. And he stooped low to where we are, and where are we apart from Christ? We are in a state of pity and poverty. See, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That is true. And where are we? We are right here. Low, limited, powerless, fractured, helpless, broken, and pitiable. And yet this God in the person of the Son left his heavenly estate to bring consolation to our weariness, strength to our weaknesses, and hope to our despair, and above all, grace to our sinful condition. The word who spoke into existence all the molecules that are necessary for our own existence, he took on those same molecules to assume our condition in order to rescue us from that condition. See, in Christ, we do not leave our humanity. We simply become truly human. And that's why it matters that Jesus became flesh. Let's pray. 
Father God, as your word goes forth, I ask and I pray that it would not return void. And we know indeed that it does not. You promised us in your word. But I do pray that you would aid us during this time of expectation as we remember this glorious time when you, Jesus, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And boy, what a thing to behold. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your sacrament. And we come now to you, giving you the worship that is due unto your name. Help us to be sanctified by word and spirit. Help us to worship in spirit and truth, we pray. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.